our lives can be governed by the restlessness of many small appetites. Many of the appetites that we experience in our lives make only momentary and fleeting appearances. Other other of the appetites that appear in our lives and accompany us can be like uninvited shadows that are difficult to get away from. On a retreat, we become intimately acquainted with the hungers of our minds, our bodies, our hearts. We become intimately acquainted with the random hungers that send us wildly off looking for satisfaction in the tears, in the fantasies, in the daydreams, in the future. We also become intimately acquainted with the deeper hungers we carry within us that we sometimes feel we have seen too many times in our lives. Hunger makes us busy and restless. Hunger leads us to be reaching into the next moment, the next experience, the next encounter, looking for something, looking for something that feels to be missing. Hunger is a force that makes it very difficult for us to rest with ease and contentment in ourselves or in the moment. But instead, hunger is a force that demands satisfaction and gratification that leads us wandering and seeking for that gratification and satisfaction, but too often not finding what it is we are seeking for. Many times we go wandering through hunger, looking for what we feel is missing, but too often meeting once more that aching experience and feeling of not enough, not having enough, not being good enough, just not enough. Like chasing the mythical pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, when we are pushed by hungers in our lives, we perhaps very rarely seem to reach that point in our consciousness or in our hearts where we deeply feel that there is nothing missing, nothing absent, nothing lost. We perhaps rarely reach that point in our lives and our hearts where we feel, aha, I have arrived. I am home, or reach that point where we feel, in this moment, the way I am, the way this moment is, that there is nothing to be gained or added or perfected or strived for. That experience of resting in a kind of sublime contentment and ease 
of resting in peace and serenity, at ease with all things, is sometimes called the perfection of wisdom. It is important, I feel, for us to connect with the hungers that do move us in our lives and move us in the moment, to deeply question those hungers, to understand them, to question whether the hungers and the appetites that move us can actually bring, ever bring to an end, that shadowy feeling of their not being enough. Whether hungers and reaching and wandering is ever going to be a pathway that will eventually allow us to rest with ease and wisdom and compassion in our bodies, in our minds, in our hearts, in our world. And perhaps it's important for us to question whether the restlessness of so many of our appetites actually fuels a feeling of there not being enough, leading us actually to wander in a kind of homelessness, wandering in a way that we hope will bring an end of pain but which many times actually brings more pain. The words, I need, <clears throat> are very powerful words. There is certainly one level within us when we do need to be able to recognize clearly what it is that we need, what nourishes us, what sustains us, what enlivens us. But we also need to appreciate sometimes the ways in which these words, I need, are actually born of a kind of alienation within ourselves. The words, I need, are sometimes the beginnings of many journeys that we make in our lives into exile and into homelessness. We hunger or can hunger for many things. Hunger for approval and acceptance. Hunger for love and understanding. We may hunger for certainty and control, or hunger for security and safety. These are many of the appetites that arise within us when we are somehow exiled from knowing what it means to rest in the truth of our own being. These are some of the appetites that arise within us when we don't feel connected with what it means to rest in an unshakable wisdom within ourselves. And they are the hungers for approval and certainty and control that arise when we don't deeply understand that no one outside ourselves can actually provide us with the love and acceptance and intimacy we seek for unless we are able to offer those qualities and understandings to ourselves. Our 
needs, our sense of wanting can be remarkably convincing. We can find ourselves often in our thoughts, in our minds, in our dreams, reaching and wanting, and in doing that, place ourselves in a position, sometimes of extraordinary vulnerability and powerlessness. Because it seems when we feel something is missing and begin to look for it outside of ourselves, then the fulfillment of those needs seems to rely so totally upon someone or upon something else. And making endless journeys to try and fulfill those needs increases our distance from ourselves. Making the aim endless journeys of wanting increases the distance from being able to be with ourselves. Making the endless journeys of wanting and wandering also, I feel, has the effect of distancing ourselves from any true sense of authenticity or wisdom, or freedom. We can become very beseeching in our lives. We can also almost become a kind of beggar in our lives when our well-being and happiness and ease of being depends upon the uncertain alms dispensed by someone or something else. Now, many of the hungers that we experience, many of the appetites that we experience in our lives are actually not so dramatic. We often perhaps are aware of maybe a quiet but persistent discontent or restlessness within ourselves. That sense of just not being able to fully settle, to wholeheartedly settle in the moment. Some of our hungers are almost like nagging at our consciousness, like a, a kind of subdued but persistent toothache that doesn't exactly overwhelm us, but we are never really far away from it. We see these hungers on retreats, you know. We eat breakfast and we finish breakfast. We're quite satisfied and we're a little surprised when we start thinking about lunch. <laughs> You know, we desperately want a sitting to end. We can be so wanting. I want this sitting to end. You know, I want to do something else. We go and do something else. We begin a want. We begin a walking. And what do we know? There are the same thoughts again. We would like the walking to end, so we can begin something else. We would may perhaps find ourselves just kind of wanting different thoughts or different feelings or a different mind or body or we would like a different kind of meditation often, you know. It would be nice if this was a different kind of meditation. We want a different roommate. We want more silence or less silence. The mind has a wondrous, capacity to produce restlessness and wanting. Sometimes we just want to be distracted. 
Sometimes we just want to be distracted. I mean, you may have found yourself, perhaps, in this retreat so far, you know, entertaining yourself psychologically and mentally with little thoughts, you know, not particularly meaningful, not particularly exciting, just something to do. Just something to think about, you know, it doesn't need any insight, not particularly charged, you know, but just something to do while we're sitting around. And it's almost like we want distraction and almost anything will serve. And why do we want to be distracted? I mean, that's a good question, you know. Have you ever wondered, you know, what our attraction is to being lost? It's a curious attraction. I mean, we don't wake up in the morning and decide, oh, it's a good day to be lost today, you know. <laughs> what is our attraction to being lost? Why, why would we be inclined? And it's a really, you know, it's an intriguing question. Why would we be inclined to be more busy with thinking and wandering and, you know, fantasies and daydreams than we would be inclined to be still and present? Sometimes we want to be distracted. We, we re- actually even welcome a clamor, you know, distraction because it stops us feeling the pain of hunger. Because to be distracted, we are not so present, so aware of the pain of hungering so endlessly. Last summer I was teaching a retreat with a a lot of children on it, and I was... um, asking these, these little kids, you know, four and five years old, if they knew the difference between want and need, and that seemed pretty obvious to them. You know, needs were very small, wants were very big. It, it seemed very, they were very clear about that distinction. And I, I said to them, what do you think, what do you get when you go through the day wanting all the time. And th- this little boy, you know, piped up, he said trouble. <laughs> the second noble truth says that wanting is the cause of suffering. That craving is the cause of suffering. And that actually liberation is blowing out the fire of craving. Sometimes I think we feel this is too simplistic, you know. There's a lot more causes to suffering than craving. But take a close look. Take a close look at suffering, moments of suffering in your day. And appreciate how much of a prison craving and restlessness of our appetites actually is. I'd like to read you a story by Nasruddin, of course. Nasruddin 
Nasruddin was eating a poor man's diet of chickpeas and bread. His neighbor, who also claimed to be a wise man, was living in a grand house and dining on sumptuous meals provided by the emperor himself. His neighbor told Nasruddin, if only you would learn to flatter the emperor and be subservient like I do, you wouldn't have to live on chickpeas and bread. Nasruddin replied, and if only you would learn to live on chickpeas and bread like I do, you would not have to flatter and live subservient to the emperor. We are many times, I feel, actually diminished by some of the appetites that govern us in our lives because they lead us to renounce ourselves. They lead us to place ourselves at the mercy of our hungers being fulfilled. We give our appetites ultimate power to determine our well-being, our peace, our happiness, our freedom. In this journey of freedom, we are not asked to renounce ourselves, but we are asked to be willing to renounce the endless journeys of wandering of our appetites. We are asked to renounce the hungers that compel us to find a home and a resting place outside of ourselves, always in some other moment, some other time, some other person. It is why this time of solitude and this time of silence is such an important time, such a precious and crucial time in our lives. These qualities of solitude, of aloneness that we cultivate here in a retreat, they are not just qualities which are the territory of religious or spiritual traditions. Ancient and contemporary tribal cultures Acknowledge aloneness as a sacred space. Acknowledge aloneness as a space which is rich, which has rich and fertile potential for opening and for deepening. In countless cultures, solitude is used as a way of marking, marking and honoring changes and life transitions. Solitude and aloneness is so often seen as being the way of letting go of the old and the prerequisite to traveling new pathways in our lives. To be alone and to be still invites transformation because when we are alone and still, it brings us closer to ourselves. In many ways, in solitude, in, in cultivating aloneness and stillness, we are actually stripped bare. We are stripped naked in a way. And it becomes a time of revelation and new understanding. When we can be alone and still, not pushed by the never satisfied mind, we do have the space and the opportunity to listen in and to ask of ourselves what it means to be authentic, what it means to be free, what it means to step out, to disengage 
from restlessness and wandering. In Aboriginal cultures, this time of solitude is called the dream time, a time of reconnecting inwardly and of integrating new realities, a time of coming home and recontacting the wisdom of our own being. In many tribal cultures, young girls mark major transitions in their lives, mark transitions into womanhood through solitude, through going into the forest with only basic survival support. Those times of solitude are never considered to be times of punishment or, or deprivation, but rather those times of solitude and stillness are revered like a womb in which the young woman actually gives birth to herself. In those times of solitude, the other women of the tribe, the other members of the tribe, don't surround her hut shouting at her and delivering prescriptions of how she should emerge with what particular identity, with what particular thoughts or feelings or descriptions but rather solitude is surrounded with respect. It is acknowledged that this is the way in which she finds herself. In our culture, retreats for many of us actually serve as a rite of initiation, a time of solitude and stillness in the same way. I encourage you to think of this time and this retreat as a sacred space for you, a time in which it is possible to let go of the old, a time in which it is possible to open to new realities. This is the time when we step off the treadmill of restlessness and wandering and to look just a little bit more deeply a little more clearly and honestly at what moves us in our lives. This time of stillness is a time when we are not consenting in this time here to be imprisoned anymore by the a thousand and one appetites that can consume us, but to look into our own hearts and minds and to begin to understand what is at the root of so much of the restlessness and discontent that we can experience in our being? Hunger is a need for nourishment, a need for life. If we were starving physically, we experience that that kind of being without a kind of starvation could perhaps be extraordinarily painful. If we were in that situation of starving physically, we wouldn't say to our bodies, you know, well, I actually, I'm not going to feed you until I come across a really good five-course gourmet meal. We would be addressing or, or moved to address the pain of that hunger, and probably we would settle for anything. If we were really starving, we would settle for anything. 
You could be the most dedicated vegetarian if you were really starving and McDonald's turned up. You would probably turn right in there, you know? You would settle for anything. Hunger has an edge of pain. Now, on our, I believe, I feel, on an essential level within ourselves, we hunger for nourishment, for freedom, for intimacy, for authenticity. But those hungers that we carry with us, those very valid, important, life-giving hungers that we carry with us on an essential level, also carry with them an edge of pain. There is a feeling, perhaps, of there being something missing or lacking or absent. And unfortunately, in our lives, we are tempted more to address that edge of the pain of hunger rather than looking more deeply at the hungers themselves. Because there is an edge of pain, whenever we feel deprived of intimacy or authenticity, because there is an edge of pain to our hunger for freedom, we are sometimes tempted to settle for the junk food of the spirit. To settle for belonging, for identity, we want to know who we are. We want to know what is true within ourselves. Sometimes because that wanting is painful, we are tempted to settle for images or descriptions or labels. Sometimes we want to know what is true, or we find ourselves longing to know what is true, but it is easier to settle for what is safe or for what feels certain, to settle for control or order or habit. Sometimes we find ourselves longing and yearning to understand what it means to be whole, to be complete, to know a deep inner communion and oneness. We may be tempted, because of the pain of that hunger, to settle for temporary gratification for settle for something less. I always loved that line in the movie, Song and Louise, where it said, you get what you settle for. You get what you settle for. And sometimes I think it is really important for us to look in our lives at what we are settling for. Because if we are settling for something less, perhaps, than what is truly possible for us, then we might actually find ourselves facing a kind of endlessness in terms of the restlessness of appetite that can govern us. What we are doing here on retreat in this space is actually, we are stepping back from wandering. 
we are not believing anymore that we're going to die of starvation if we don't immediately satisfy the restlessness of every appetite. We learn to listen a little better, to be a little bit more still, and look directly and without judgment at what are the essential hungers that actually move us to see them as an invitation to go more deeply into ourselves. Here we have the opportunity to give a wholehearted attention to the essential hungers and yearnings of our hearts that lie beneath so much of the restlessness and fear and dissatisfaction that we experience in our lives to look at those more essential hungers that I would almost be inclined to call sacred hungers. Sacred hungers because they inspire us to cast aside all that is false and limiting. Sacred hungers because they inspire us to reach for greatness of heart and spirit, to reach to understand that which is most true and most free in ourselves and in others and in our world. There are two powerful yearnings, powerful longings within our hearts that we connect with again and again in our lives. One of them is the longing for truth, for authenticity, for freedom. The other is the longing for intimacy to know a deep sense of communion and connectedness and bonding with all of life. The longing to be free and the longing to know what it means to touch the heart of another being of our world, of ourselves, without fear or distance or separation. Both of these longings, both of these most fundamental yearnings, actually share a similar thread, share a similar core. They are a longing for the end of separation, a longing for the end of being exiled or banished, a longing to know what it means to live in a way of communion, of truth, of authenticity. Unlike the restlessness of many of our small appetites that lead us away from ourselves, these sacred hungers actually return us. They bring us back to this moment, to this mind, to this body, to this heart. They bring us back to question again and again to understand for ourselves what does it mean to be free? What does it mean to be intimate? What does it mean to be authentic? There is such an experience and such a quality that we could describe as a kind of positive dissatisfaction. And I actually feel that it's really useful to cultivate positive dissatisfaction. When we are no longer satisfied with accepting conflict or separation or division or alienation as some kind of norm in our lives. To actually cultivate the dissatisfaction with that. That this is not all that is possible for us. The sacred hungers, the longing 
for intimacy, the longing for freedom and authenticity will awaken in many moments in our lives and can be evoked by many different sources. Sometimes our sacred hungers are evoked by joy and sometimes by sorrow. Sometimes we can read a single, uh, read a, a poem, a story, or hear a single world, a word spoken by another. And it has the power to startle us into wakefulness, to make us pause and to be still, to remind us of the greatness of love and intimacy and truth that somehow can be lost in the busyness and the wandering of our lives. Sometimes a single moment in nature when we are truly and deeply connected can have such a powerful awakening force within us. We can look at the unfoldment of a single bud on a tree outside and just suddenly open to the incredible tapestry of life of which we are a part and be reminded to be at home on the earth, in our bodies, in ourselves. Sometimes those hungers for communion, for freedom, are evoked by, mo by a moment of true intimacy with another person, when we really know what it means to be present without demand, without need, but where we nourish and are nourished. Just as joy can remind us of a world of possibility, sorrow and pain can serve us in the same ways. Death and separation, failure and disappointment, loss and fear. For each one of us in our lives, there will be moments when the order and the certainty of our worlds is shattered. And yet even in the midst of grieving, in the midst of sadness or anger, there can awaken an energy and a yearning and a questioning that actually makes us wonder why we lose our way, why we lose ourselves, and can make us question and wonder whether there is a way of holding this world of uncertainty and unpredictability in, in a way in which we are not shattered, but with grace. The energy that is, uh, can be awakened through joy and sorrow is a vitally important energy. The experiences of joy and sorrow can be both, can be vitally impor important. Because both of those experiences do have the power to strip us of certainty and identity. And in that, reveal a quality of openness and depth where the most essential hungers within us are alive and vital. Now we see there are different options available to us when we encounter pain. I mean, pain can tempt us into fantasy and avoidance and into wishful thinking. 
restlessly making us want to jump into the next moment, the next encounter, wanting us to jump into a moment that is better. That is one of the effects of pain, to try and distance ourselves from, pa- from feeling. But pain can also be a powerful opening force that actually reminds us to ask, well, what are we actually committed to in our lives? What, is it, what do we honor? What do we value? What are we actually dedicated to in our lives? I mean, sometimes it is a great sadness that these questions only arise, or many times often only arise, when we're in moments of crisis or pain in our lives. Because quite frankly, for a lot of us, there's a lot of moments, you know, which are not tragic moments. We have a lot of moments in our lives, you know, when we are not disturbed. And yet surely to be awake in our lives really means to be asking those questions all of the time of ourselves. What are we committed to? What do we value? What are we dedicated to? What do we really honor? Not demanding answers important, not demanding answers. It is enough to have life within the questions. Moments of pain and moments of joy have the power to diminish us. They equally have the power to liberate us. And we must be extraordinarily wise in all of those moments. We see when we encounter moments of joy and happiness, We can be diminished because those moments can release a series of appetites that actually diminish the experience of joy and diminish ourselves. You know, think of it, you know, you you have a, you know, you could have a remarkable moment outside in the woods, you know, you know, you just encounter, you know, you see a, a chipmunk, you know, or, or a bird or a pine cone, it's so magical. And yet we're touched. We're deeply touched, very opening. And we come back in meditation, can hardly wait to go out and see if it's still there. You know, like a little more of that, you know, or, you know, well, you know, well, you know maybe I take some food out, maybe I can get that chimmong to be there all the time, you know. How, you know, we can bring forth through, through happiness this desire to hold and to, to, to preserve and to maintain and to possess, and we are diminished by those appetites just as that moment of communion is diminished. In that mo- those moments of joy can also allow us to be touched, to open, to be inspired, to remind ourselves to look inwardly. You know, these are not accidents. Joy doesn't have to be an accident in our lives. You know, happiness doesn't have to be an accident that, you know, if we're lucky, we stumble over a few moments of happiness and joy now and again amidst the crises. You know, this is not the way things have to be. Sometimes happiness can remind us to look inwardly. What allows us to be touched? You know, is happiness actually a state? Or is it a way of being touched? 
with a quality of openness and receptivity, sensitivity that is nourished, that is cultivated, that allows us to touch and be touched in a powerful way. It takes a great deal of inner trust, perhaps a real leap of faith, to surrender our demands for certainty, to surrender our need for prescriptions and answers. In many ways, it takes a great leap of faith to be willing to let go of conclusions and images and judgments and descriptions, all of the things that are prisons for us. It actually takes a great deal of trust to be willing to stay close to the moment in an open way. I feel that to truly understand what it means to be intimate, what it means to be authentic, what it means to be free, we actually perhaps are asked to be willing to strip ourselves of knowing. To strip ourselves of knowing. And that's what openness is all about. You know, in an ideal spiritual path, this is the ideal spiritual path. The ideal spiritual path, we would first discover great depths of wisdom, and trust, and equanimity, and balance, and insight, and then we would let go. <laughs> unfortunately, <coughs> unfortunately, the ideal spiritual path is a fairy story. Here we are asked to let go first. Here we are asked to let go first. This is the act of faith. This is the act of trust. To let go first of our conclusions, our descriptions, our demand for answers, our need for certainty, and in that letting go to see what emerges. Feel that every conclusion that we draw about ourselves, no matter how small, is a surrender of possibility. The path of wisdom is actually learning to rest with a certain ease in not knowing. Trusting the insight will emerge. Trusting that that openness and not knowing is actually a pathway to discovering authenticity, truth, freedom, and intimacy. The simple gesture of renouncing the restlessness of our appetites is also a profound gesture because that is when we begin to be still, when we step off the treadmill of wanting, of not wanting, of never enough, when we step off that treadmill, then we begin to be still and we begin to listen and to honor our sacred hunger for wakefulness, for freedom. 
May all beings live with integrity. May all beings live with wisdom. May all beings understand freedom. We have just two minutes quietly together, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.